0: The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today.
1: Episode number? Mm-hmm. Cool. 217. Wow. You, you either wrote it down or you randomly guessed, and either way, you're right. Yes.
0: Yes. I was just doing some uh, Dropbox cleaning up, so I, I, hmm. I had it top of mind
1: you get a sticker girl Uh, keeping up with my 2016 new year's resolution. I'm all about learning things, uh, maybe that I'm not familiar with, learning things that uh, are new, perhaps to me. I think a lot of the time, because we live in Canada, there is a big difference between Canada and the U.S. when it comes to some things, but a lot of familiarity. Is that the
0: right word? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Similarities, maybe.
1: Sure. You're going to go with the easier word. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have a guest for this week where I'm very excited to hear the story and then, kind of, I have a lot of questions already for it. But uh, Taylor Schumann, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you well, for we, saying
1: yes. <laughs> yeah, That's true. I mean, oh, I'm we're happy honest. To be here.
2: Yeah. Thank you
1: for showing up on time as well.
2: <laughs> You're so <Yeah>. welcome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we like to ask a skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Taylor, who are you, and where did you come from?
2: Well, I am Taylor, and um, right now I live in Charleston, South Carolina, with my husband and my son, who is almost three and our two dogs who are wild and they all keep me very busy. Um, back in 2013, I was wounded in a school shooting. And, um, so since then I have spent a lot of time, um, recovering and learning and reading and writing. Um, and so now I'm an author and very thankful for the opportunity to, to write a book about my experience and, um, And I do a lot of um, gun reform work here in the United States. Um, And so that's my primary work right now. Yeah, so that's me.
1: Eventually, at some point, we'll get to 2013 and and when this life-changing event had happened to you. But if you were to look at the trajectory of your life growing up, where did you think that you would be? Did you think that you would be doing the speaking and author and gun reform, which I will find out what that is a bit later as well?
2: No, I did not. I um, I always wanted to be an author, but I, I thought I would maybe write fiction or children's books or something like that, but I've always loved to write. So I always hoped that would be part of my life, but um, growing up and right out of college, I, I started in social work. Um, and so I, I more imagined a, a sort of quiet life for myself, just having a job and being married and you know, having kids and and just being sort of unknown by the rest of the world. Um, and yeah, things did not turn out that way. <laughs> Mm-mm. Uh, growing up with, uh, I don't know, did you have a, did you have sisters, mom, dad, brother? What was life like for you? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up with my mom and my dad, um, and my sister, I have a younger sister. She's about four years younger than me. Um, yeah, we grew up in, um, in a small town in Virginia and, um, everything was, pretty normal. Grew up going to church and going to school and, you know, it was pretty quiet and, and nice. Mm -hmm. And then 2013 hit. 2013 hit. Yeah.
1: I I feel though, and maybe it was because I was in high school when Columbine happened, but that was kind of the first that I remember hearing about, maybe gun violence and there being shootings at school. I could definitely be wrong about that, but that's kind of where I feel that was the start of things. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. Yeah. There were, there had been a few school shootings um, in the United States before that, but um, on a smaller scale. And the thing about Columbine was that it was really the first time that anyone at the school um, or around the school had cell phones. And so it's really the first one where we see, you know, the live news footage and people are making 911 calls and calling their loved ones. And so we had more of a window into what was happening. And, and so for most people, you know, I was eight when Columbine happened. And so that's the first one I remember. Um, and, and for most people, they would say the same just because, yeah, first, first time it happened with cell phones around and it changed everything. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's what's interesting, too, is that I remember for that, then all of a sudden we were doing lockdown procedures, what to do if something like this were to happen. It was similar to 9-11, where we yeah. travel differently. Columbine kind of made us do school a little differently.
2: Yeah, I did. Yeah. That's when, yeah, we started to see the, the idea of, of lockdown drills, um, in, in a lot of schools, they would do specifically active shooter drills, which were a little bit different. My school just did the the lockdown drills and, and I have very vivid memories of that starting and, um, realizing, oh, something is different now and it, it will probably always be this way. And that's, that's definitely been the case here.
0: Mm -hmm. It's tough too as a parent, um, Seeing that shift, I mean, we experienced Columbine as as young people yeah. and how that shifted, you know, our initial introduction to school to how we finish school. Um, and now we have kids going to school or, or soon to be going to school. And I remember my daughter's first lockdown drill and she came home and she was just so scared. And yeah. now schools aren't necessarily that safe place in some ways, that they used to be used to be just yeah. go to school. You're fine. Everything's great. And it really did shift people's perception of sending your kids off to school in the morning. You don't know what will happen by the end of the day. Is, yeah. is that something that uh, for you also know as a parent and having lived that has that kind of uh, tweaked the way you look at schools?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely has. Um, I think that I. When Henry is at the age to, to go into school right now, he just he goes to, um, we call it school, at a local church um, and hangs out for a few hours a week. Um, but I will definitely be asking a lot of questions about their procedures, how mm-hmm. it's presented to kids. Because really what we've seen happen here is that um, a lot of times these drills happen in a way that is doing a lot more harm than good. And that's not something I would have really known to ask questions um, years ago, Um, but I do now And, and to kind of evaluate how schools are handling this, especially when it's really young kids, because like you're saying, you know, I think we all experienced that shift where it was like you were a regular kid or a teenager. And then the next day, you learn that sometimes kids go to school and they don't come home Uh. and it can't be the same after that. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are ways that we can safely train teachers, um, and school faculty to handle emergencies like this without actively traumatizing kids. And I think that needs to be, um, what we set out to do.
1: So going back to 2013, Uh, my assumption is it's a normal day, like every day where you would get up, you would go to school and then things took a turn.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was a Friday and I I got up to, to go to work at the community college. Um, The next day was supposed to be my bridal shower because we were getting married about six weeks out from, from that day. And yeah, I was excited to head into the weekend. Thankfully, Fridays were a pretty slow day at the school, not a lot of classes there. So we didn't have as many students as we might have um, on the other days of the week. And, you know, my coworker and I talked about our breaks. We would each get a 15 minute break because it was a um, short day. And she decided to take her break. I decided I would, I would switch with her and, and wait. Um, and yeah, a, a student came in with a shotgun and I turned around to see. This gun pointed at my head, and you know I had a few minutes to decide what to do, how to handle that, how to survive that, and thankfully I had a a minute to run into a supply closet that was behind my desk and and shut the door, and that's when he shot um, at me through the door, and the bullet went through my left hand. Um, part of the door kind of exploded um, when the bullet came through, and so I had shrapnel and shards of, of wood, um, in my chest and my, my face. I couldn't see out of one of my eyes for a while. And it, it lasted about five minutes. It felt like much longer than that. One other student was wounded and she also survived thankfully, um, and is doing great now. Um, and, yeah. And actually an off-duty security guard heard about the shooting over his police scanner and, and drove to the school and was able to get the shooter to surrender his gun. And um, that coworker that I'd switched lunch breaks with saw him walk into the school with the gun and, and she was one of a few people that called 911. So they were able to get there pretty quickly. But yeah, that was kind of the start of of my life as a shooting survivor because that's that's it. You know, you can't go back from that. And and so I, I had four surgeries that first year, a lot of physical therapy, occupational therapy, a lot of counseling, which I still do now. And yeah, just kind of figuring out how, how to live in that space after something like that happens.
0: Being a teacher or, you know, being a part of the faculty, uh, did you feel a sense of responsibility for the students? Was there that almost that survivor guilt of, oh,
2: I should have done more or I could have done more? You know, I experienced survivor's guilt in a different way. For me, I had an easy time understanding that this was not my fault. This Mm -hmm. was someone who made a decision for himself and for the rest of us there that day. There was just nothing else. There was nothing I could have done and that's okay. That's not on me. That's not on anybody else that was there that day. Um, Maybe on Uh, you know, maybe we can search for people to place blame onto um, things that should have been done to make the school safer, all those kind of things. We can ask those questions all day. Um, I experienced survivor's guilt more in a way that was, well, a lot of people die in, in shootings, in school shootings, and I didn't die. And so what do I have to do to prove that like, I am someone that should have been saved when so many other people aren't. Mm. And I didn't really understand that as being survivor skill until, you know, a very wise counselor kind of spoke into that for me. Um, but that, that was more my experience, like basically trying to prove that I was worth my life being saved. Um, you know, what can I do to, to make sure people know that I, I really, Oh, it's good that I survived. Like I'm making it worth it. Um And of course, you know, that's, that's something I had to unpack and um, work through and let God really speak into my life that that's not truth. That's not um, anything he's placed on me, anything I have to do, but that's really hard. And I think a lot of people in similar situation go through something like that.
1: It's interesting because over these last four years and having conversations with people about their life and about their trauma, I'm pretty sure four years ago, I probably would have said, Taylor, count yourself lucky. You only got shot in the hand. Yeah, You know, you could have been a lot worse. But now, four years later, where I think I've grown, my thought is, how are you dealing with that trauma? How are you dealing with that PTSD? Because small minor things to big things create so much work up in our head.
2: They do. And, and I think that's a really common response from people. I certainly got a lot of that in real time. Oh, you're, no, you're so lucky. It could have been so much worse. It was only your hand. And I'm thinking it was my hand. Like I've lost a lot and like, this is much more than this injury, but I would probably have been that same person, you know, before, that saying that. And in some ways, yes, I'm incredibly fortunate that I survived Um, And that my injury wasn't worse, Um, but it was still pretty bad. And it was still a trauma and like, we don't need to, it's not like, you know, I call it like the suffering Olympics. It's, we don't have to play that game with each other. Like we can just say, wow, that was terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you. What is this like? Mm -hmm. Um, How is this affecting you? And, you know, I had to, I had to learn that for myself too, because, You know, when you go through a trauma or something like that, you're living in these constant contradictions that feel like they're making you kind of crazy because I was grateful that I survived, but I was also really mad that Mm -hmm. I had to go through it at all. And I was really thankful that it it was my hand, um, but I was really afraid for what that would mean for my life, my quality of life, my future. So it's all these contradictions you're living in and you feel like you have to be very optimistic and positive and thankful all the time. Um, But you're also like really traumatized and really sad and angry and afraid and it's okay. Like you can have these feelings at, at one time. And I don't know that we as a society in general are very good, like accepting that you can live in that space and that most of us do. Um, and it's more complicated. And, you know, I, I, think about when we're little and we learn about feelings and we have that feelings chart and they say point, point for the point to the feeling you're having and you point to one, but so often like we're experiencing way more than one feeling at a time. Um, and cause we're human beings.
0: Yeah. I love that you bring that up because we are human and we are so complex and we have the capabilities of feeling so much, Yeah, you know, and even like trying to, encourage your kids to like not just point to one feeling but all of them yeah and it does like you said the olympics like there's no yeah. competition when it comes to all the feelings it's just important to feel them to name them acknowledge them and yeah. then figure out your next steps. so how important on that level of education about feelings do you think that you know well, how important is it that we start talking more about our
2: feelings in that way I think it's so important. And this is one thing I'm I'm really proud of like my generation for and, and the ones kind of coming up after me. I think that we're becoming so much more aware of like the importance of mental health, emotional health, talking about it, not living life as such in such this like individualistic way, but talking about things and and how that gives permission to uh, for others to say, wow, me too. I'm really having a hard time with this or this feels very complicated to me. Um, like I just, you know, I love that God created us with all these emotions and all these feelings. And those are signals to us, right? Like to process and to learn about ourselves and to learn about other people, because, you know, I, through this experience, I've learned so much about myself. I know myself better than I did before. Um, and the flip side to that is I am also a much better friend to other people now, um, I, f- I feel like I know better how to support people, how to walk with people through hard things. Um, and that's what it's all about, right? Like figuring out what your experience means for you, but also how it can be used to affect other people and, and what you can do with that in sort of like a community way. I think that's really important. And I so I think, you know, learning about our feelings, our emotions, figuring out how to process things, like learning coping strategies, helping each other. These are only positive things.
1: Was uh, released a couple of weeks ago uh, when thoughts and prayers aren't enough. Was this a form of therapy for you as well? Being able to jot down kind of the experiences that you went through?
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, I've been writing about it since it happened. That was kind of one of my first ways of processing it um, and talking about it with other people, because sometimes it was really hard for me to have like face-to-face personal conversations about it, but I could write it down and I could let people read it um, and let them kind of give them a window into what I was experiencing. So to be able to write the book in this way um, was such a great opportunity for me. When it when I was sort of walking through it in those very early days, I was really looking for a book. You know, I f- I think I bought every book about suffering and trauma and mm. faith and all these things. And I was searching for something and I didn't really know what it was, but I just couldn't find it. And I wanted to write a book because I wanted to write the book that I needed then. And so when I did this, it's not something I wrote just for other shooting survivors or just for people who have experienced gun violence, but for anyone who's walked through something really hard, um, walked through a path of, of grief, um, trauma, maybe just something they didn't expect, um, something that they've had to, to figure out. Um, I wrote it for all those people. That maybe just needs someone to say, This was very terrible and it did not mm-hmm. all turn out in like roses and rainbows. It's still very hard. And you know what? That's okay. God is so good. I, I'm getting through it. I, you know, I'm surviving. Um, and and so yeah, it was very healing for me. I I learned things just in writing it, you know, even though it had been about seven years when I started really writing the, the manuscript and I think, wow, I didn't, I didn't even realize this then. Um, so for me, writing has always been a way to, to process and to find clarity and understanding. So being able to do it this way was really a gift for me.
0: I really like the title too because i i recall social media and twitter and people saying oh thoughts and prayers thoughts and prayers and then i started seeing tweets and people saying i don't want your thoughts or prayers because clearly it's not helping um and there was kind of that element of a saying that we would say to offer encouragement became something that was almost offensive yeah um and so for you why was titling your book that so important
2: yeah i you know this phrase thoughts and prayers it became something that we just kind of wait to see in the wake of a mass shooting or a mass tragedy, mass violence, what have you. Um, and for the people who are most likely to say it, maybe it's politicians or um, leaders, faith leaders, whoever, it has almost become sort of just like a thing on their checklist after something really mm. bad happens. Well, I, I did it, I offered my thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did such a good job. You know, I, I can move on now. Um, and I've had some people, Christians especially, ask me if I'm sort of poking fun at Christians or making fun of prayers or minimizing this. And I am not because I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in prayer. Prayer is so important to me, I believe in it deeply. And it's because of that that I am so frustrated by this phrase of thoughts and prayers. It's become sort of an excuse, a thing on the checklist. It's become a cop out, a way to say, well, I did something. I offered my thoughts and prayers. When in reality, the way it's being used is a way to absolve yourselves of responsibility to do anything more. Mm. I think it's especially offensive because typically we're seeing it from political leaders who are the very people who have, uh, the greatest amount of power to actually do something about gun violence when a shooting happens. Um, and so that's offensive to me to use prayer as a cop-out. Um, if we really believe in prayer, it should be where we start, not where we finish. Mm. Um, and so I think we, Um, You know, I'm not angry about prayer. Prayer is not offensive to me, but it is offensive if that's the only thing um, you are offering because God gave us the ability to communicate with him through prayer. And he also gave us hands and feet and a physical body um, and minds to think and resources um, to do things and to, to ask God, what can I do? Pray, ask him, what can I do? Show me what I can do and, and move from there. Um, so yeah, that's why it was important for me to, to use that in the title.
1: Would that be a better response? What can I do rather than thoughts and prayers or what would you like to see?
2: Yeah. You know, I think, um, people looking to, you know, in the United States, we, if there's something facing the country, you know, take it COVID, uh, we say, we're going to talk to people who know, and we're going to figure out what to do. And we're going to move forward. Um, so when it comes to gun violence, let's say we're going to talk to people who know what's going on in, in their communities. We're going to see what a next step can be. We're going to look at the power we have to figure out what what maybe we can do to keep this from happening again. Um, we have so much power, so many resources, so many people who know what it takes to um, impact change at local levels, um, at, a, at a national level. We have the resources. We can do these things. So yeah, to say, I am sending my thoughts and my prayers to people who are affected. And I'm also asking what we can do and making a plan to move forward. That's all it takes is just a few extra words, right? This is where I think we differ a little bit from Canada and the
1: US. Yeah, And it would be guns and gun control. I, I To be honest, sure. I don't know much about uh, what it is in the States. I know, I think we got to register our guns here in Canada. What would you like to see, uh, happen now?
2: Yeah. So really in America, one of the biggest things we need is, um, expanded background checks. We need it to be, um, required, um, and accessible for every person who sells a gun, to run a background check, a criminal background check on that person to make sure they are um, someone who is allowed to, to own guns. So we need to kind of stream that process, make that required because right now in America, um, we have a few loopholes where if it's a private gun sale or if it's a sale at um, a gun show, I do not know if you have gun shows in Canada, um, you don't have to do a background check. And so you're just able to sell that gun to to whoever wants to buy it i've and never really been do. to a gun show yeah neither do we have not sure? gun sometimes,
1: shows? sometimes i got muscles and i yeah. stand in front T- of tickets to the gun show into, right here you do your
2: own you do your own <laughs> um yeah so we have those here it's just like they pop up in big convention centers or wherever and you know people just sell guns and typically you don't have to run a background check um so anybody can can walk in and, and um, buy a gun. Um, so we need that to change. Um, there's also a push right now for what we call red flag laws, and that is where, um, say, you've got a family member and you know they own guns, and you're they've said some things or there have been some actions that are causing concern. You're afraid for them. You're afraid for the people around them. You can call your law, your local law enforcement, and have them placed under an extreme risk protection order. Um, And what that would do is give law enforcement the ability to take that person in front of a judge, assess what's going on, and offer a temporary um, taking of their weapons until you can deem them to be safe. Um, We've had really great success with those here. Um, They have reduced the rates of firearm suicide specifically by um, just giving that person a little more time to, to change their mind, to not choose suicide. Um, So yeah, we've seen a lot of great um, rates of reducing gun violence through those. That would be great. I would really also love to see um, a safe, a national safe storage law. Um, Right now there really aren't laws um, nationwide. Some localities have them for how firearms have to be stored inside um, a home. So here about eight kids a day, will be killed or injured by a firearm simply because it wasn't stored properly. It was on the nightstand. It was on the coffee table. They thought it was a toy. Um, and that's just too many kids. It's, it's too many kids. Um, and so I would love to see something there. We also just have some problems in our, our background check system where certain people really shouldn't be allowed to buy guns, but because of the way the loopholes are there, they're allowed to. Um, and so, kind of strengthening the systems we already have, it doesn't have to be a ton of new laws. It's just kind of seeing where the current ones are, are failing and struggling and empowering the current laws to be more effective. Because, um, you know, right now, I think it just came out that over 4 million gun sales to prohibited people have been stopped because of the background check system. So, it works. That's a lot, of, a lot of guns that weren't sold to people who shouldn't have them. It does work, but we need to look at it and fix the problems we have it so it can just work better. I kind of want to talk about the faith angle as well, yeah. um, because you said that you grew up in a, a Christian
0: home and, yeah. you know, faith is a big part of your growing up. As you, you know, expecting a pretty normal life with nothing out of the ordinary to happen. Uh, and then you had that, that. Um, major life-changing incident with Virginia Tech and
2: the shooting there. Um, how did that impact your faith? I like to say that before this happened to me, um, you know, I I love the Lord. I've grown up in church. My faith was very important to me. Um, but I knew the God of, like, good times and the God of happy things. Not that I hadn't experienced hard things in my life before, but I just wasn't intimately acquainted with a God of suffering and brokenness and what that means, how we can live in that. It's not something that he always fixes. Um, I didn't really know how to live that life. I knew how to pray for healing and to expect healing. And like, I did all the right things, Lord. Like how did this happen to me? Like I'm praying for healing, I'm praying for healing. And it didn't come. I am so grateful that I know that God now and can see that. In other people's lives, other people who have been through really hard things, who are marginalized, who don't, um, you know, all the injustice in the world. Like, my eyes were open to not just people who have experienced gun violence, but all sorts of things that I just couldn't have seen before because I didn't really know to look for them. Um, And so, you know, I think I... It's so hard to be like, well, I would choose this again to happen to me. I really am grateful that if this is what it took to open my eyes, to see people that I can be the hands and feet of Jesus to um, and serve and love them well, then that is a price I would gladly pay because I feel closer to the Lord. I feel closer to his people. That's something that you know, I can't trade. <laughs> like That's incredible to me. Um, and so I'm really grateful that he used this in my life this way.
0: What was one of the biggest takeaways with your faith that you were able to take away
2: after this happened? I'm not a burden to the Lord. Um, he loves to love me and to be with me and to sustain me and to help me. It's so really, I don't know if you guys are into the Enneagram Um, but I'm a two brought up a
1: lot lately. Yeah, it's really
2: hard. I'm a two. It's really hard for me to ask for help. I really hate feeling like an inconvenience. And I didn't really understand how that could affect my relationship with God because he knows everything about me and, but it was. And so there's a long time I spent just feeling really guilty for like needing God so much and needing help and, um, And he's been so kind to just show me that like, he loves me and this is who he is to me, my helper and my sustainer. And I don't have to, to worry about feeling like a burden to him. Um, And that has changed so much about my faith and and how I walk in that.
0: This is the Why Me Project podcast. So, um, you know, reflecting over your life, when was a, a standout Why Me moment?
2: You know, after the shooting happened and I was in the hospital, I had um, a hospital chaplain come, come see me. And she asked me if Jesus was sitting right here with you on your hospital bed, what would you ask him? And I told her, I would ask, you know, God, what do you want me to do now? Um, And I think at the root of that was sort of a, why me not in a, Oh, why God do you let this happen to me? And, but more in just a, why me? What do I do now? Like what, how do you want to use this? How do we, how do we move forward with this? And I think asking that, those questions opened me up to being able to receive his answer, um, whatever that meant for my life and has opened up the doors for me to, to do all the things I'm doing now. And I'm, I'm just really, it was hard to ask those questions because you expect an answer you might not like the answer that you get, um, but I am so thankful that God in his kindness was able to, to let me be open then and to listen. Um, not that I always did it perfectly. I always wanted to do it. I railed against it often, but I, I think that, um, yeah, the asking that helped me be willing to see and do.
1: When thoughts and prayers aren't enough available now, uh, Taylorshuman.com at taylorshuman and at taylorschuman writes. Uh, after looking in the mirror, I apparently got to work on my gun show. Uh, Taylor, we appreciate <laughs> you taking some time and uh, hanging out with us today.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you once again to Taylor for taking some time. I've said it before, Holly, I don't know what I don't know. And it's nice that we're able to have a conversation and gather more information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hear about these events that happen on the news and your brain fills in the gaps. So it's just really encouraging to hear, especially Taylor's story of how she's been able to take such a tragic moment in her life and in her community and use it to... Incite positive change.
1: I've heard a couple people mention the whole when thoughts and prayers just aren't enough Mm -hmm. in one form or another. And so I've really been diligent on when something happens to not go hashtag thoughts and prayers to actually do something about it or grow from it or learn from it so that we can not have something like that happen again.
0: Yeah, exactly. Also, if I'm going to say, hey, I'm praying for you uh, to someone, I actually pray first and then I then I send the message. Because it's like my reminder. Yes, I want to actively, you know, support this person through prayer. And I'm not just going to kind of quickly text it. I'm just going to do it and then let them know I did it.
1: Yeah. And, and the other thing too, is if it's somebody that we know we can reach out and we can have that one-on-one rather than just chuck it up on a Facebook or an Instagram mm-hmm. or a tweet or a TikTok or whatever and say, hey, thinking of you, loving loves, thoughts and prayers, where yeah. we can, as you said, physically do something about it.
0: Yeah. Let's get some faith with actions to insight. Again, positive change. That seems yeah. to be my theme coming away from today.
1: Yeah. Positive change. And speaking of action, uh, downloading our podcast. Uh, telling friends and family members about a complete strangers Mm -hmm. Uh, checking it out on apple or spotify download all of those stitcher and soundcloud you're saying yeah 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 johnny and holly i'm gonna do it no 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 actually do it
0: yeah because we can tell when you don't rate or review we see that Well, we don't see anything
1: (laughs) we get your thoughts and we get your thoughts and prayers we want action
0: (laughs) we want reviews and five stars if you would
1: be so kind Six, if possible. And uh, don't forget, you can also check out faithstrongtoday.com.